0: Welcome to The Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. This week, our host Dr. Lynn Koick is joined by Dr. Grace G. Sun Kim. Grace was born in Korea, educated in Canada, and now teaches in the United States as professor of theology at Earlham School of Religion. She is the author or editor of 21 books, most recently, Invisible, Keeping Hope Alive, and Intersectional Theology. She is the host of the Madong podcast, which is hosted by the Christian Century, and is an ordained Presbyterian Church USA minister. More of her writing and work can be found on her blog site, Loving Life.
1: Hi, Grace. Thank you so much for joining us on the Alabaster Jar. Well,
2: thank you so much for the invite. This is such this is a thrill, and it's so exciting to be on this podcast with you. So, thank you so much.
1: Yes, well, and we met face to face in a, in a rather unlikely space, at least an unlikely space for me, a couple of weeks ago in downtown Chicago. There was an event commemorating the uh, beginning, I guess, or um, the establishment of. South Korea I don't know I, I yeah. you you say it better than me what what was Yeah it was a national yeah national Korea day so it was
2: a reception to uh kind of commemorate uh South Korea so the um council the Consul- Consulate General in Chicago always holds a reception around that time every year. So um, I've been there with Reverend Jesse Jackson, and it was so, so wonderful to meet you because we did a, a podcast or something similar to that for Grand Joseph Hill uh, a few years ago on one of his books. So it was so great to connect with you, and I'm so grateful for you to come to First Methodist Church in Elmhurst for my talk. talk. Talk on invisible. That was so wonderful. Thank you so much for coming because I was worried that no one was going to show up, but it was a good crowd. So thank you so much for coming.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, yeah, we met um, that that evening was so delightful, and then we realized, yeah, we had done a webinar a couple of years before that, so it was kind of crazy. But and it it was um, that part of the. Reason I'm mentioning the the reception is that we are going to talk a lot about Korea today and uh, celebrating both South Korea, but also the Korean heritage that goes back thousands of years. Yes. Uh and uh-huh. the uh, and you the,
2: have, at Northern has so many Korean
1: students, right? Well, we and are. Yeah, we are starting a uh, new MA in worship. Korean track.
2: So, yeah, so
1: exciting. Yes. I am
2: so thrilled to hear that. And I met Dr. Um, Lee at that same event, so it was really wonderful to connect with you and Dr. Lee at that Korean reception.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Well, and I thoroughly enjoyed your discussion of your book, Invisible, and that's what we want to uh, dive into for the podcast Um but as we get into the book, so much of that is also understanding your story. And so maybe you could start with your story beginning in uh, South Korea and then Canada and then finally the U.S. But talk just a little bit about um, your your own childhood. Okay, thank you so much.
2: Um, I love talking about how I grew up. And, you know, I, I weave it into my books, my blogs, my speaking. And it's kind of... Um, I do this because we come to know God through our own lives and our experiences. And in my intro class, um, I teach at Earlham School of Religion, um, I always assign a simple assignment, a theological reflection assignment, so that they can pick an experience and reflect theologically and see and um, think of who God is in those experiences. So for me, I find like I've lived in three different countries and these three countries have made a huge impact on my own theology, my teaching and my writing. So as you mentioned, I was born in Korea. Um, and, you know, I was just a little girl. I was five years old when my father decided he wanted to immigrate to Canada. Nobody else in his family or my mother's family left. And, um, you know, my, my grandparents were very upset that he wanted to leave. Nobody wanted him to leave, but he is like this black sheep of the family and he decided he's going to leave. And it was in the seventies. Um, the war had ended and it was very difficult for young families. So in the 70s, many, many Korean um, young couples with young children left Korea for either the U.S. or Canada. In the 70s, it was a little easier to go to Canada because nobody wanted to go to Canada. It's cold so, up there. Yeah, it's I cold, yeah. <laughs> So nobody wanted to live there. So my dad said he's going to go to Canada and then leave for the U.S. But, you know, it's difficult once you settle down to go anywhere, and it's not that easy to cross the border. So I grew up in Canada, did all my schooling from kindergarten all the way to my Ph.D. program. So that's a lot of schooling that I did all in. We first lived in a small city, London, Ontario, and our family never went to church, But soon after our immigration, a family that lived in our apartment building invited my sister and I to go to church. And then a year or so later, my parents decided to go. But for immigrant, you know, particularly Korean immigrants, the church is such a big part of immigrant life. Because it's so hard for Korean immigrants to learn the new language, like as an adult, and be part of the white dominant society find good jobs so the church is a place to find jobs to connect the church members are your extended family so if you're having a party an anniversary at some celebration like everybody is invited so that's partially why my parents ended up going because they realized all the korean friends were at church so um growing up in london ontario and i write a lot about the experiences of racism. And, you know, that was so long ago, but I still remember as if it happened yesterday.
1: What, what because, are some of those? If you could just share one of those, with um, us help us understand. Yeah, so um, growing
2: up in a small city two hours from Toronto, where it is, you know, it's called a white Anglo-Saxon city. That's what they used to call it. And, you know, they rarely knew who Koreans were, but there was an influx, you know, I don't know, about a 100 Korean immigrants. I, I, I don't know the exact number. And so the white kids did not know, you know, who I was. So being teased about my eyes, about the way I dressed, about my lack of English speaking ability, you know, being called racist names and... Um, you know, they would tease me over and over again about what I was. It was never who I was, but what I was. And I responded, I'm Korean. And, you know, in the seventies, in a small town, London, many people have not heard of Korea or Koreans. So everyone kept saying there's no such thing as a Korean. And I would go home because I was so confused and I would ask my mom, Am I Korean?" And she would say, yes. So I, you know, those little teasing, and then much later in my adult life, I met some um, Korean Americans, because now I live in the States, and they said that they had experiences of, you know, everybody has heard of Japanese and Chinese, but Korea, it's a small little peninsula kind of in between China and Japan. And so people in some parts of the U.S. thought Koreans were an offspring of a Chinese person with a Japanese person. So if they got married and they had children, some people thought that the, the offspring were called Koreans. So people didn't um, know who we were. And it was just so easy for kids to make fun of us. You know, the ching-chong aspect, the pulling of the eyes, the slanted eyes. Those are very painful, whether you fully comprehend uh what they all mean to you, you know that people are laughing and making fun of you. So it is the experience uh, of that that is with you for your whole life. I still, you know, have this visceral effect every time I think about it and talk about it because it was so negative and happened for so many years, just over and over again. And then the, you know, the two components that really affect my writing and my speaking and blogging and even my podcast. So there is a racism in the wider society. And then you go to church and you've experienced sexism. Of course, sexism is outside the church too. But those two components, which were so large, the white dominant society and then the Korean churches I was attending as a young kid, I never really saw any Korean woman leaders, no Korean, uh, woman minister. And the, the teaching of, you know, woman be silent, woman obey, you know, that was taught to us over and over again. And my mother, who was a very faithful Christian, really, really believed it. And she would kind of incorporate it into the household and, you know, it was just my sister and I, and she would teach us those teachings to us. So you get this large component of racism in in the larger society, and then sexism within the church.
1: So, so, and if I could, yeah, um, ask you um, a little bit deeper before we move into the um, issue of, of gender Um with the racism, um, I know that you've done a lot of work on the history of that racism in the U.S. because, uh, and I'm asking this question because um, our, in, in the United States, there there's a lot of emphasis, rightly so, on uh, the slavery of uh, Africans and then the African-American racism. And uh, I... I sense that there's often a downplaying of or even a denial that there is such a thing as racism against Asians, but actually it's, it's- – Woven into our uh, U.S. history, so could you talk a little yeah. bit about about that reality? Thank you so much for this thoughtful question. Uh, I really, really appreciate
2: it, and you nailed it right on about the downplaying. So there are several factors for the downplay. Um, the white dominant society decided to call us Asian Americans honorific whites, so we're not white but you're kind of an honorary white. So if you put a label like that, it really diminishes all the suffering, discrimination and racism, prejudice, xenophobia that we have experienced in our whole history of immigration here in the US and in Canada. Another term is model minority, which was um, a term in the 1960s by white sociologists who decided to just throw it upon us, Asian Americans, to say that, um you know it was there's was several factors why they wanted to throw it to us one was um to say to the other people of color if only you study hard enough if only you work hard enough if only you kind of contributed to society then you will be just as great as Asian Americans. That is such a false narrative because we don't all go to the top schools. We don't all have the great jobs. Um, there are so many poor Asian Americans living here in the US. You just have to Google the statistics, but it was used against us to pit other people of color against us. So there's that factor. And then the other, you know, Those are the two. And then the other one is, I grew up in the, in Canada, and when we talked about racism, it wasn't so black and white. They still believed that, you know, the uh, Aboriginals, uh, the First Nations, uh, black, Asian American, Hispanics all experienced racism. But here in the U.S., For some unknown reason, racism is always talked about in black and white terms. I think partly because of the long enslavement of Africans and the larger population of Africans here in the U.S. But if you talk about racism in black and white terms, then you forget about those who fall in between black and white. So the Native Americans, Hispanic and Asian Americans. So it really downplays our experiences of racism. They keep telling us, and you know, I've had so many people here in the US, when I call out racism or my experiences of racism, they will say, oh, that's not racism because you're Asian, Asian American, you're almost white, you're the model minority, how can that be racist. So I hear that over and over again. So it really diminishes all the pain and suffering that we have experienced. You know, with the African Americans, you know, society clearly understands or at least acknowledges the enslavement of African Americans. But because Asian American history is not taught in schools. So this past summer, actually, I helped, um, with this organization in the, in New York area to push for education of Asian American history. Because if we don't know it, then we are so, we're not. Clearly understanding what happened to Asian Americans.
1: And it's a shocking, it's a shocking story. I mean, Uh when you were telling me some of the specifics, I thought, yeah, why don't I know that? Maybe you could share a couple of those experiences, uh, realities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were
2: indentured servants. And Lisa Sharon Harper, um, I I had her on my podcast Madame on her book, Fortune, and she said part of her African-American ancestry were indentured. And she said the only difference between indentured servants and enslaved Africans are indentured workers have an expiration date. Besides that, there is no difference. And so we know that Asian-Americans were treated harshly. They couldn't own anything. They had to pay back uh, there was an expiration date, but it only expired when you were able to pay back your debt. And it was an enormous debt that it was almost impossible to pay it back. So they worked um, tirelessly. Um, it was horrible conditions. So that's one aspect. Other aspect is the railroad. Many of them worked in this harsh conditions. The white workers were paid almost double or more than the Asian Chinese workers. But then Uh, White workers were paid food along the way. The Chinese were not. So with the measly pay, they had to pay for their food, which left hardly anything. And all the dangerous work was assigned to the Chinese. And that's why so many Chinese railroad workers died, because they were given the task of blowing up dynamites, which was very, very dangerous. There's also the Japanese internment. U.S. was in war with other countries. But only the Japanese were interned. They uh, lost everything and they were kept in these horrible quarters for years during the war. When we think about lynching, you know, we always uh, acknowledge the lynching of African Americans, but other groups were also lynched. And the largest lynching in US history was, happened in LA in Chinatown when white people lynched a group of Chinese, and about 17 to, 17 to 21 were lynched and died all at once. And that is the largest recording here in the U.S. When we think about voting rights, we often think about voting rights for African-Americans, and we forget that Asian Americans, well, first there was a Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 which prevented no more Chinese from entering the country. Everybody thought that they were bringing disease or they were taking jobs. Everybody was afraid, yellow peril, you know, xenophobia was strong. So that was supposed to be in place for 10 years. Congress kept extending it. During that time, Chinese couldn't own anything. They couldn't, uh, when they were taken to court, they couldn't speak out against white people. There were all these restrictions. They Had to carry papers around. They couldn't leave the country. Um, it, you know, it was an awful situation, and that also meant that they could not vote. So it was finally lifted in 1943. So it was only a recent history that Asian Americans were allowed to vote. So that's 1943, the Chinese were first allowed. 1946, the Japanese Americans. And then eventually the other Asian Americans were allowed to vote. So that is a very recent history, part of our history. And we just don't know about it because we don't teach It In our system, in our school education system, my three kids um, all went to school here in the US from kindergarten, and they were never taught this. And they grew up in the Pennsylvania education system, public school, they were never taught this. And all across the US, I think there's only two or three states that are demanded. um, Congress was able to demand um, Asian American history in the education system, but that leaves so many other states that are not teaching any of this history. So if we don't teach it, then we just gloss over and we just think about racism in black and white terms.
1: Well, yes, and, and uh, we'll try and put some resources in our show notes um, that you can give us grace for our listeners to get themselves educated and uh, for their churches to be educated on this. You had also mentioned not only racism, but also sexism. And I thought maybe we could think about those experiences that you had in relation to your uh, journey as a scholar. You've talked about teaching and writing. You've had that hurdle of, as an Asian American, but not just an Asian American, an Asian American woman. You talked just a little bit about how you overcome uh, some of the barriers and were able to uh, get over those hurdles. Okay. So um, I must mention my book, Invisible. Um,
2: It is a new book, and I do share a lot of my personal hurdles and obstacles, my experiences of racism and sexism. And while I was writing it, I was really ill. I became hospitalized and... You know, it, it was about eight months later that I came back to the book and I realized I had written all these stories and then I was a little scared to keep them in. It was in the copy editing stage and I was thinking of deleting many of them because they are so personal of my own experiences of racism and sexism, both also within the church and in society but I ended up keeping them all. So if you want to know more, all the listeners can go and read Invisible. It's almost like a diary or my personal journey, kind of sharing with the world. But the impact, you know, it came out about exactly a year ago, but so many people have um, thanked me. Um, It's not just the Asian American community, but in all communities, and also white women who have reached out to me to thank me because I kind of wrote it as a lens for other people to understand their own experiences of marginalization, racism, sexism, um, of oppression, because, you know, it, These things happen to so many groups. So I really wanted the book to be a lens for people to understand their own story and their experiences. So, you know, sexism. I don't know when you were saying about how I overcame the hurdles. I think the hurdles are still there and it's like a day to day experience for me to overcome them because I am a woman and I will. You know, I will die a woman. So just because I overcame a a sexism event or a sexist thing last year doesn't mean that I am exempt from future um, experiences of of sexism or racism. But through my own writing and my theological um, journey, I have come to see the good news in light of these experiences that continue and really strengthens me that this is not the way the world should be i'm not going to sit here and say oh we are to be racist we are to be sexist we are to be uh, xenophobic and homophobic we you know these are things that are not part of the kingdom of god because if god created us all equally And if scripture talks about there are no, you know, Jew or Gentile male or female, uh, enslaved or free, that really means that we are all created equally. And if we are, then we are all children of God. So these isms that really put us down as women or as people of color or as immigrants, the church really really needs to fight it because many times the church perpetuates this um the church did, just kept enslavement going you know they they preach sermons of you know, slaves obey your masters. And the church continues to say, you know, women be silent and obey your husbands. That's why it's so important, you know, Dr. Lynn, that you are this provost, you are really setting the bar for many of us women that we can become leaders in society, in the church, in the seminary, in these uh, places that God has called us to be. Why should our skin color or our gender be an obstacle to this if we really have the gifts that God has given us and we need to use them and engage in different forms of ministry? So it's a hurdle that I continue to, to well, jump I- over every day. <laughs>
1: Yes. Yes. Well, you're absolutely right, and and you've been resilient, um, and and you have found a way, even in your sharing, which is so create uh, courageous in your book, invisible, and also in um, as you mentioned in your podcast and in your other writings, of modeling uh, a resilience rooted in rooted in the word of God, as you were saying, you know, we're made in the image of God. Um, as, as we um, come to the to the bottom of our half hour, um, I, I would love for you to reflect, if you can, on the idea of immigrant being a, uh, an immigrant in two ways. One, from a biblical standpoint, how do you feel the biblical text encourages us or examples in the biblical text of immigrants? And then today, what would be... A word or two that you would have for our churches as we I mean i don't want I don't want anyone else to experience the kind of childhood that you did, right? So how do we how, how do we develop in our churches a loving welcoming embrace of the immigrant? Yeah,
2: you know when we think about um, the New Testament uh, writings, everybody is an immigrant. You know, almost everybody's an immigrant because we are people who move, um, you know, thousands of years ago as hunters and gatherers, people moved once there is no food, once, you know, they couldn't grow food, you know, due to climate or due to other things events, natural events, people moved. Scripture shows that the Israelites were moving, wandering Aramean, or now I can't think of the correct verse, but people moved all the time. And when we think about various countries like North America, um, Canada, and U.S. are very young countries, except for the Native Americans and the First Nations, Everyone else is an immigrant. Um, people have moved around. And if you want to go back to the Native Americans, people will say, you know, they moved from Asia or other places. But it's the fact that everybody moves. We are all immigrants. But for some reason, here in the U.S., you know, we had the Irish coming um, due to potato famine or some other reasons. The British came maybe for persecution, religious persecution, or other reasons they came. Um, African Americans were brought here. However, we came, we have migrated here. So we should always welcome each other because this nobody owns this land. Or if you're going to think biblically, God has created this world, and we are here and we need to pay our rent, and so we do our service to God. We do what we can to save the planet, save and work for justice and do what is good and welcome the stranger. Because that is so biblical, to welcome the stranger into the land. And so migration will always continue to happen. Asian immigration is hundreds of years old, but it will continue to happen because climate change is happening. There are climate refugees, political refugees, religious refugees. People are going to continue to come. Ukrainians are coming because of the war. We have to welcome each other. But because we are visibly different as people of color, you know, uh, other people have noticed how uh, white refugees are treated differently than people of color refugees. You know, that is... uh, that's the reality of what's happening here in the U.S. I think it's so important that this understanding of immigration and being a migrant is talked about in Scripture. And we are to be kind and welcoming and embracing those who are so different from us. I think that is the biblical message, that God welcomed us and we welcome each other. We are to love uh, one another, as Jesus has commanded us to do. But we get, it becomes so hard. I don't know why. I, ha- and especially for the church too. I don't know why the church finds it so hard to welcome those who are different from us. So that has been a constant message in my writing. Uh, when I wrote Embracing the Other, that was what drove me to it because people just can't embrace those who are so different. Whether it because they love someone that people don't want you to love or are neighbors with someone that you shouldn't be a neighbor with or are disabled, something that really prevents church people or the church to love one another. And we know that churches are breaking up because of some issues, and it just is so painful. And I'm sure God is looking down and shedding a tear because it is so painful to watch churches not being able to welcome and embrace those who are so different from the dominant society.
1: Well, that, that is such a, a prophetic word, um, and certainly you're right that once we lose sight of the fact that we also are immigrants, um, then it, the the game is over because we've now— We've created an us versus them, and uh, once that happens, uh, there's there's a tension, and we either are patronizing in our help, um, or we're cruel, as you experienced um, as a child. But the way forward, I think you've presented it, is that we recognize that we too are immigrants, and that uh, then then we're all together, and we can walk. Arm in yes. arm in that. Yes. Oh, thank uh-huh. you so much, Grace, for just sharing with us uh, at at a personal level. I'm I'm so grateful for your sharing um, and for also helping us understand better the, the um, history, the history of Asian Americans here in the United States. And uh, yeah, just thank you so much for coming oh, well, on the Alabaster Jar.
2: Yeah, well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to talk with you and I hope to see you in person again soon. So thank you for your ministry and for your leadership. I really, really appreciate it so much.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on the Alabaster Jar Podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation today with Grace, you can find her writing and support her work on Substack at her blog called Loving Life, which we've linked in today's episode description. Next week, we begin a special Advent series. So please share, subscribe, and join us back here next Tuesday for a brand new episode of the Alabaster Jar Podcast.